Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is exaggerating the public domain. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With our IPI Policy Basics podcast, we're building an audio reference library on basic policy concepts and topics. For those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy, or who need to get up to speed on a particular issue. I'm joined today in studio, as usual, by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. And today, Dr. Matthews, we want to talk about the public domain, uh, what is it, and is its importance being exaggerated? Mm -hmm. And this is driven to some degree, these Policy Basics podcasts are undated um, because we intend for them to not be bound up in, in any particular event in time. But we do happen to be recording it at the beginning of 2024. Right. And there's a reason. And there was a lot of media attention on January 1st and thereabouts, 2024, because finally, after many, many uh, legal extensions, uh, Disney's sort of founding character, Steamboat Willie, the forerunner of Mickey Mouse, mm -hmm. passed into the public domain. And so you saw lots and lots of stories about how Mickey Mouse has finally come into the public domain. And now other people, Disney can no longer control it. And other people are allowed to do thus and so. And there was a movie studio that announced its intention to produce a slasher horror film with Steamboat Willie <laughs> as the lead character. <laughs> and something similar to this happened a couple of years ago when Winnie the Pooh passed into the public domain. And all of a sudden there was some sort of a horror slasher film with Winnie the Pooh that came out. You know, one of the things we need to do is probably mention how long that is because yeah. you, you have the life of the uh, author, the life of the creator who mm -hmm. did that, plus 70 years, I believe. And it used to be a shorter time. Yes. There, there have been a couple of a couple of congressional extensions of the length of copyright. And Mickey Mouse played a role oh, in yeah. that. So, okay, so let's, let's back all the way up and say what we're talking about is copyright. And what we're talking about is what happens when copyright protection expires. So copyright is a form of intellectual property mm -hmm. that governs creative expression. Uh, songs, musical performances, books. Art. Art. Uh, actually, copyright sometimes applies to computer code, mm -hmm. um, poetry, movies, television shows, uh, characters. Um, so, you know, the studio, and I don't know who it was, but the studio that created Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm -hmm. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a character that is covered by copyright. It doesn't belong to the actress who acted out the part. Her image and likeness belong to her, but the character... Buffy the Vampire Slayer belongs to a studio. There's some someone owns that character and they can license it for TV, movies, comic books, whatever. Um, and so the Constitution actually in the copyright clause authorizes Congress to protect creative works and inventions. Um, not for an unlimited time, for a limited time. But it's up to Congress what the limit is. And so, as you point out, there have been several times where Congress has extended that limit. It was challenged all the way to the Supreme Court. There was a famous case 
uh, where where uh, law professor Larry Lessig mm-hmm. challenged the latest copyright extension, and the latest copyright extension was very much attributed to Disney, and it was very much seen as a, as an attempt to protect Mickey Mouse. Um, and uh, Larry Lessig went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled against him nine to nothing. Mm-hmm. And what they said was. It is up to Congress what a reasonable copyright term is. The, the Constitution simply says it has to be for a limited time. But what that limit is is a legislative decision. There is no standard for what is reasonable and what is unreasonable. So it's up to Congress. And so despite all of those extensions, uh, Steamboat Willie has finally passed into the public domain. And what we're talking about is... Um Walt Disney, who created Steamboat Willie, mm-hmm. and then so it's the li- his life when he dies. Yes. Then, as it stands right now, it's seventy years after he dies. Exactly, and so this applies to things like Sherlock Holmes, and it applies to James Bond, the the Bond novels, and the Bond, all of these things. These are characters that were created by somebody, and they, or their estate, or the studio who owns the character, whatever. Uh, they are free to own and control these characters and these storylines are free to own and control them for whatever the copyright term is. Now, no one thinks that there's going to be any more extensions to copyright. I mean, even even the most aggressive proponents of copyright would say that this is as long as it's ever going to be. Mm-hmm. Okay, So there's nobody out there, including Disney. Disney didn't try to extend the copyright on Steamboat Willie any longer than they did. So what we've talked about so far is what is copyright? We've given some examples of copyright, and we've talked about copyright term, okay? Mm -hmm. But what is the public domain? The public domain is that area of creative works where copyright no longer applies, okay? So even if you are sort of one of these copy left types and you use uh, the creative commons to allow people to use your work, even that is a system of copyright. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of at the end of the copyright term, you can't even use Creative Commons anymore to control how people use your character. Um, so the public domain is where things go once they're no longer covered by copyright. So someone like Edgar Allan Poe, the reason that you can get all kinds of versions yes. of Edgar Allan Poe's works, he's been dead a yeah. long time. You, you it's can in make, the public domain. Yeah, absolutely. You can you can go out and make a movie or a TV show based on a Shakespeare play, and you don't have to pay anybody a nickel. You don't have to license it. You don't have to do any of that stuff, right? Because it's in the public domain. And of course, Shakespeare is like hundreds of years old. But as you point out, there there are, you know, the, the Scarlet Letter, mm-hmm. you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne's works are, you know, they're already in the public domain. Moby Dick? Exactly. These are all in the public domain. So if you want to go out and make a movie of Moby Dick or whatever, you don't have to pay anybody a license fee. Nobody can tell you what you can and can't do. Um, if you want to make the whale the hero, if you want to make, you know, Captain Ahab, uh, you know, a uh, child murderer or something, you, you can do that. OK, you can do that. Here's what we really want to talk about, because we at the Institute for Policy Innovation have been defenders of reasonable copyright. We do believe in property rights. We do believe that an inventor or a creator have a right to control and profit from their invention or their creation. Mm -hmm. So if you create a character, if you write a poem, if you write a song, et cetera, et cetera, if you write a book, you have the right to control that content. Again, as the Constitution specifies, 
for a limited period of time. Now, you can forsake that right if you want to. You can say, I don't care what people do with my work. That's fine. But you have the right as the creator or inventor to control it. And the the argument from a constitutional standpoint, from a philosophical standpoint, the, the argument is that the creator has a right to own and control their creation. That it's just, it's like a fundamental sort of moral property right. The, the utilitarian argument is that the whole point here is to incentivize people to create and to promote and develop. Um, we, we want to say to people, if you go out there and you create a successful copyright product, or if you go out there and create a successful patented invention, we want you to be able to get rich from it. We want you to be able to profit from it. That's, that's, it's an incentive for you to do that, because the more we can incentivize creativity, the better. But when it comes to the public domain, uh, the question is really no. The question is really no longer incentives to create because the copyright term is over, and so the ownership right is gone. What we really want to emphasize in today's Policy Basics podcast is this idea that is promoted by opponents of copyright that somehow the public domain is this wonderful fantasy land. Candyland, where all this wonderful, wonderful content is free and no longer under control, and that somehow copyright is some kind of an immoral exception to the public domain. The idea is that the public domain is really the way things ought to be. I mean, if, if it weren't for, you know, nasty capitalism and nasty property rights, everything would be in the public domain and things would be so much better. And the, there's two problems with that argument, I think. First of all, if there were no such thing as copyright, creators would still create because creator, it's in their nature to create. Um, you know, if you're a poet, you're probably going to write poetry whether or not copyright exists or not. If you're a novelist, you're probably going to write novels whether or not copyright exists or not. If you're a songwriter, you're probably going to write songs uh, whether copyright exists or not. At some marginal level, the copyright protection gives you an additional incentive maybe to create more than you would have right? Mm -hmm. But what copyright really does is it gives you and it gives other people the ability to promote what was created. And I think this is the really important element here. A poet might very well write as many poems without copyright as they would have with copyright. But the question is, would anyone have ever read them? Because what copyright does is it creates an incentive not just to create, but to promote and distribute because a profit can be made. Contracts can be entered into. So, so if you're sort of, you know, let's just, let's just be funny for a minute. Let's just say you're sort of like a free spirited hippie poet out there. Right. And, and, you know, you've written a couple of hundred poems. Um, odds are they're never going to leave that little copy book or that little notebook that you have tucked under your, tucked under your mattress if it weren't for copyright. But what copyright does is copyright gives a publisher, it gives a journal, it gives a magazine an incentive to say, hey, we'll pay you 100 bucks for that poem, uh, and we'd like to publish it. And so the genius of the copyright system is only secondarily that it, that it encourages creativity. It's primarily it increases, it, it, it encourages distribution and promotion so other people can hear about your work. And there's an interesting bit of work that's been done uh, by, a, by a law professor 
named Mark Schultz, who's a friend of IPI, where he's looked at different countries. And he has pointed out that the music of various countries internationally, its success in the marketplace has been directly related to the strength of the copyright regimes in those countries. And the reason that you know about Jamaican music and Bob Marley's music is that it turns out Jamaica had a really strong copyright regime. But the reason you don't necessarily know anything about, like, the music from Ghana, Mm -hmm. from Ghanaian musicians, I mean, it's just as musically rich as Jamaica, but the reason you don't know anything about those musicians is that Ghana did not have a strong copyright regime. So the musicians were still out there creating music, but there was no incentive to distribute it or to promote it. And so this is, again, part of the genius of copyright is it gives incentive to the promotion and the distribution of creative goods. And so this takes us back to public domain. When something falls into the public domain, all of the incentive to promote and distribute is gone. It's gone. And so here's what we see. When Winnie the Pooh comes into the public domain, we see a couple of slasher, low-budget slasher films are made with Winnie the Pooh, you know, Winnie the Pooh goes out and kills everybody else in the the Hundred Acre Wood, you know, (laughs) Winnie the Pooh kills Christopher Robin, you know, kills Piglet, whatever, you know, and that's it. So you have like the exploitation film that's made, and then that's it. And there's not going to be a whole bunch of rich Winnie the Pooh content that continues to be produced and distributed because all the incentives are gone. And so this is my prediction for Steamboat Willie, and for the early iterations of Mickey Mouse that are now in the public domain, is you're going to see a couple of things produced that essentially are mocking the character, Mm -hmm. that are making fun of the character. You're going to see things like that. But are you going to see quality content created by third parties now that these characters are in the public domain? No, you're not. Because really, once something passes into the public domain, all of the incentives to produce and to promote are gone. And so this is going to be a little hyperbolic, and this is going to infuriate a lot of people, but to a large degree, what the public domain really is, is a wasteland of creative products that no one has an incentive to promote, to refine, to develop, and to continue to use, other than, of course, the classics. So, you know, there's always going to, everyone's always going to read, you know, the novel Emma, right? Everyone's always going to read Edgar Allan Poe. Everyone's always going to read Shakespeare. Everyone's going to always read, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne, The Scarlet Letter. Those are classics. Everybody's going to read Moby Dick, right? And because they're in the public domain, any publisher can publish those stories. Right. But what incentive do they have? See, this is the whole point, right? What incentive does someone have to produce, to publish Moby Dick? Well, they, they have incentive to publish because schools still require people to read. Yeah. So you have— So it's, it's demand-driven, they're usually, right? They're usually inexpensive right. paperback versions. But if you are a marginal creator with, who does not have a big name, or if your work did not have big marketplace success and it publishes and it passes into the public domain, that is the public domain for you is essentially for your work is essentially a ticket to obscurity. Mm-hmm. The point that we want to make in this Policy Basics podcast is that this is part of the value of copyright, is that it creates an incentive not simply to create, but to promote, to publish, to distribute. Uh, if when something's under copyright, you have an incentive to license it, you have an incentive to promote it, 
you have, you have an incentive to continue to build on it. And when something passes into the public domain, almost all of those incentives, other than just you know the ability to mock it, sort of disappear. So uh, this is definitely a pro-copyright view of not only copyright, but also of the public domain. Uh, but what we wanted to do with this podcast is sort of push back on this idea somehow that society should be wildly celebrating when something passes into the public domain. Generally speaking, when something passes into the public domain, uh, that is a one-way ticket to obscurity for that creative good, not something that is of tremendous benefit to society. Well, you can find a lot more about copyright, about intellectual property policy, about patents in the public domain at our website at ipi.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.